Well, good morning. Let us uh, open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Let me begin by saying that I am grateful uh, to Brian and Dr. Kreider for preaching the last two weeks as I was out doing something. (laughs) But it's, it's good to be back. It's good to be back with you. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. Maybe we should uh, start in verse 22 to get the, the fuller context. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, Or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it is true, it is inerrant, it is sufficient. And now, Father, we pray that we will have ears to hear, be attentive to your word, speak to your people, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as as you can probably tell just by reading these verses, uh, there is a depth to them. That is hard to comprehend. And so, as it often happens to me when I'm working on a sermon, I am not happy with the sermon. Okay? I'm just telling you right now. So I'm not satisfied with what I'm going to tell you this morning. So we'll return to verses 20, 25, 26, and 27 next week as we consider the wonder, the mystery of Christmas. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will answer this one question. Why did the Lord come? And we will answer that question next week, going back to verses 25, 26, and 27. So this morning, we'll just sort of fly over these verses as we consider the role of the husband. Now, we understand from the book of Psalms, especially in chapter 119, verse 105, that the word of God is a light unto our path. We believe that it is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. And this morning, I want to take the light of God's word, but I want to put a magnifying glass against it. You know what happens when you do that to the sunlight? The natural radiance of the sun against the skin feels warm. It feels pleasant. But when the the powerful radiance comes through a magnifying glass, it doesn't feel 
warm anymore. It burns. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to feel the burn. (laughs) Now, the command to love our wives may sound simple enough, even pleasant, warm to our hearts. But when the standard by which we are to measure our love for our wives is none other than the perfect, sinless Lord Jesus himself, then this light becomes a burning beam. So brothers, this will burn. If the command to love our wives is the light that guides our path, Jesus is the magnifying glass that makes it almost unbearably hot. But we need this today. We need it more than ever. Some weeks ago, I came across an online page dedicated to men. It was all about the art of manliness. I looked at the introductory remarks and uh, they explained what the purpose of the site was. And it was all about how to be a better man. And they mentioned many things such as fitness and how to do a a bench press, Um, how to do a squat with a barbell, good stuff. Then I, I dug a little deeper and they got into all sorts of things. Some of the critical skills that every man needs to know, like flying a plane, of course, and how to fight, how to fight. Interesting. And then they started talking about relational skills and I got curious. So I started listening and reading and here's some of the things that they discussed. How to do a proper handshake when you meet new guys, how to wear a tie for good first impressions. And even how to develop a manly voice. (laughs) So I looked and I looked and I looked and and I noticed that one thing was missing. They never addressed the question, how to be a good husband, how to love your wife. And it was interesting to me that I was on a website dedicated to manliness. And I did not see a single reference to loving your wife. But let us be clear from the start. Today, this morning, we are talking about the true test of manliness. And it does not include your bench pressing abilities. In fact, it simply does not matter how much you can bench press, how many trees you can cut down with an axe, how many lions you can kill with your bare hands. You can do all those things and be amazing at it. And if that's the case, I'm happy for you. But you can do all those things and be amazing at all of them and still be a sissy. If you fail to love your wife, show me a man who understands his duty to love his wife. And I will show you a picture of true manliness. Now, I'm not saying that manliness cannot include the things that I mentioned. What I'm saying is that manliness in its truest and most comprehensive form, in its purest form, should never be detached, never be detached from husbandly love. What you are as a man is determined in large part by what you are to your wife. 
In fact, do you really want to know how much of a man you really are? Then take the time to examine your love for your wife. There's no better place to start. All right, let's close in prayer. I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, from these six verses this morning, beginning in verse 25, I will ask three questions. What, how, and why? What is the husband's primary responsibility? How is he supposed to fulfill that responsibility? And why is he supposed to do so? Now, we will answer the what question with a verb in the present tense. We will answer the how question with four adverbs. And we will answer the why question with one future indicative verb. Now, you know where we're going. Let's dive right in. Question number one, what is the husband's primary responsibility in marriage? There's no question about the answer. Husband, love your wife. Husbands, love your wives. One of the first things that you notice about these words is that they come with authority. They are written in the present active imperative, which means that this is not an invitation that requires your consent. It is a command that demands your obedience. Husbands, in here, there is no possibility of negotiation. This is what your role as a husband is all about. And you need to spend the rest of your life figuring out and learning what that means. Love your wife. Let me be blunt. If you fail in this area, your success in any other area does not matter. If you fail in this area, your success in any other area simply does not matter. The answer to the what question is then a single present tense verb. Love. The entire duty of the husband is summed up in just one verb. Love. It is actually an action word. And it is absolutely imperative that we don't miss this point. Love is a verb. It is a call to action. It matters that we understand this and we need to make much of it because when Paul says that husbands need to love their wives, he's calling them to do something, not to feel butterflies in their stomachs. You know what those butter butterflies are, right? I don't mean to be crude here, but we just call it, you know, it's gas. <laughs> That's all they are. That's all they are. We need to understand that if you, if you had a Coke right now, you may think you love everyone around you. <laughs> That's what a Coke is going to do. Now, this sounds maybe funny, but what a serious and devastating problem this actually is. Many men marry their wives because of butterflies. The problem is that over time, those butterflies tend to migrate. Then they become dissatisfied and they go looking for a different source to give them the butterfly effect. But love is a verb more than a state of being. It is a verb that will always transcend the butterfly effect. Why? Because love is not rooted in a physical reaction, but in a person. 
in a person. His name is Jesus Christ. He is love. And Christ's love for his church is not just a loving disposition toward the church. Rather, it is manifested and demonstrated in actions, concrete, knowable actions. Listen to Charles Spurgeon as he described true love. He said this, true love cannot long be dormant. It is like fire of an active nature. It must be at work. Love longs for expression. It cannot be dumb. Command it to be without expression and you command it not to live. Love must express itself in deeds. Love is a verb. But it is at this very junction that we come face to face with a potential problem. A problem that the apostle Paul knew very well. We as creatures of earth, we are good at redefining concepts and redefining the truth to fit our own preferences. We are creatures of impulse. We are creatures of reaction. And saddest of all, we are still bound to this flesh, which is constantly seeking to promote desires that are contrary to holiness, contrary to righteousness, and contrary to the truth. Therefore, the Bible does not leave it up to us to figure out what the husbandly love actually looks like. We need an anchor of truth that doesn't move. We need a picture of love that is not subject to change. And that is precisely what the Apostle Paul provides for us in these verses. And this is good news. There's no need for creativity. There is no need for speculation as to what husbandly love looks like. So we're now moving into our second question of this morning. that we're asking of these verses. How is the husband to love his wife? We know what he is supposed to do. It is a call to action. He's, he's supposed to love his wife. How is he supposed to do it? We have seen the lights. Now let me bring in the magnifying glass. Question number two, how is the husband to love his wife? As I mentioned, we will answer this question with four adverbs. Adverbs. What is an adverb? An adverb is a word that modifies what? A verb. Very good. An adverb is a word that modifies a verb in a sentence. So if I said to you, walk quickly... What is the verb? Walk. What is the adverb? Quickly, right? So the adverb modifies. See, it t- tells us something about the verb. So that's what I will do this morning. Our main verb for this morning is love. Love. It is an action. Now let's add some adverbs to that verb to understand how this action is to be carried out. So please listen attentively. I did it again. See what I'm doing? Listen attentively as we consider how the husband is supposed to love his wife. But more than anything, I want you to consider the standard to which husbands are held as it pertains to loving their wives, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, or letter A, he must love her exclusively. He must love her exclusively. This is the first adverb that modifies the main verb. Husbands, Love your wives exclusively. Listen to Paul. Husbands, love your wives, your wives, your wives as Christ loved the church, the church. And we will make much of that statement next, next Sunday. Don't miss the point that is being made here. Jesus knows his own bride. The Lord knows whom he loves. 
Therefore, the love of Jesus is exclusive. Jesus does not love an undefined or unidentified group of people. Do you realize that? Notice, please, how specific and definitive Paul's language actually is. Paul doesn't say, please listen to this, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the world. He doesn't say that. Neither does he say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved everyone equally. That's not what he said. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Paul did not generalize. Rather, he specified the strength and the power of Paul's words in this verse lies precisely in the fact that the love of Christ is exclusive. He loved his church. There is no randomness or generality in the love of Christ for his church. Jesus knows whom he loves. Who are these people? Well, you can go back all the way to chapter one, verse four, where we read, even as he, the father chose us in him, the son before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Christ's love for his church is eternal, established in his heart before the foundation of the world. This is the church. And according to chapter four, verse four, there's only one church, only one body of Christ. Jesus set his love upon a people. Jesus set his love upon individuals who have names, who have personalities and who have a life. They are called the elect of God. These are the people Jesus came to seek. Jesus loved her. The church, who is her? Those people elect from before the foundation of the world. If this is not the case, if this is not the case, then this verse loses all its meaning completely. It is in the exclusivity of the love of Jesus for a specific people called the church that Paul bases his entire argument for the exclusivity of the love of a husband or the wife. If you lose the exclusivity and the specificity embedded in this text, then the entire argument loses its force and its purpose. It disintegrates. Let me just give you an illustration. Can you imagine asking a husband, hey, who is your wife? And him saying to you, well, whoever wants to be my wife, I'll take her. Whoever comes, that's my wife. No godly husband would ever say that. What would he say? He would say, that woman, right there. I got to be careful with this. It's right there. <laughs> I didn't think about that. That woman, right there, she's my wife. Guess what? That excludes everyone else. Everyone else. That woman right there, she's my wife, none other. There's only one. She has a specific name. She has unique hair, skin color, tone of voice, personality, and beauty. Likewise, 
If you were to ask Jesus, Jesus, who's your bride? He would say, that is my bride. She has a unique name. She is my ecclesia. My church, my called out ones. I know her. And you know what that means? There's only one church. Everyone else is excluded. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows his bride. He knows his church. Jesus knows whom he chose and he loves them. Jesus is not waiting for his bride, his church to create herself out of her own will. Jesus created the church to be his own treasured possession. Husbands, you must love your wife with the same degree of exclusivity. Your eyes, your devotion, your dedication are all for her. No other woman has that right. The question is then, what does obedience look like for the husband? It looks like comprehensive faithfulness, meaning faithfulness to your wife in every area of your life. Your body belongs to your wife. Your thoughts belong to your wife. Oh, what a crisis we have today. Thoughts, thoughts going to filthy, nasty places. And if you're a husband and you think that's okay, you're wrong. Because the example of Jesus tells you that you are wrong. Faithfulness, your body belongs to your, to your wife. Your thoughts belong to your wife. They are faithful to her. Your actions are faithful to your wife. The exclusivity of your love for her entails the comprehensiveness of your faithfulness to your wife. No area of your life, dear husband, should be detached from your commitment to your wife. No area. In other words, you must stop Anything and everything that is not consistent with the exclusive place she has in your life. Letter B. The husband must love her sacrificially. Consider how Paul says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Samuel J. Stone wrote one of the greatest hymns ever written in the history of the church. And that is according to my own personal subjective opinion, but I still think it's true. The hymn is titled the church's one foundation. One of the, one of the greatest hymns by far, one of my favorites, listen to how it begins. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She, meaning the church, is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. What do you think Samuel Johnson was, or Stone was thinking of when he wrote that hymn? I think he was thinking of Ephesians 5, verse 25. Jesus died for his bride, the church. He paid the price for her sins. As Philippians chapter two says, Jesus left his heavenly abode, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, emptied himself, became a servant and died. And why? All because he loved his bride, the church. 
What does obedience look like? Well, it looks like selfless consideration of her needs above my own. To love my wife as Christ loved the church means that her needs will always be my priority, which leads me to the third adverb to describe the love of Christ for the church and the love of the husband for the wife. He must love her, let her see, purposefully, purposefully. I'm going to spend a little more time on this one. Consider verse 26. What is the purpose of the love of Christ? That he might sanctify, that he might cleanse, that he might present the church in splendor, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus loves his church purposefully. What do I mean by that? He loves the church with a clearly defined goal. Do you love your wife that way? Husbands, let me ask you this. Do you have a clearly defined goal when it comes to your relationship to your wife? Jesus loves his wife purposefully with a clearly defined goal. What is that goal? Her sanctification. This immediately tells us that the Lord Jesus did not choose the church because she was glorious in and of herself. Rather, the Lord Jesus chose the church in order to make her glorious through union with himself. And the Lord Jesus, having died for the church, now continues his work of redemption by the ongoing work of cleansing her from sin. As we gather here Sunday after Sunday, care group after care group, after care group song after song, sermon after sermon, Jesus is cleansing us from our sins. But look at the words once again. There's a passive side and an active side to the work of Jesus for his church. The passive side is this. The church has been cleansed. She has been cleansed. I believe this is a reference to our justification. All of us who belong to Jesus by faith have been clothed in his righteousness. Therefore, we have been cleansed. But there's also an active side in which we are being cleansed. Even today, Jesus is removing the spots and the wrinkles from the church. These spots and wrinkles are a reference to the remaining sin in all of us. Jesus is lovingly, patiently, graciously removing these remnants of sin from us. And one day the church will be ready to be presented to Christ in all splendor. And the words of Solomon to his wife will be the words of Jesus to his church. When Solomon said this, behold, he said, you are beautiful. My love. Behold, you are beautiful. You are altogether beautiful. My love, there is no flaw in you. This is the church's magnificent end. One day we will hear those words from the Lord Jesus. You're beautiful. And you with all your sins and all your struggles will be completely fully sanctified. And Christ will look at you in the face and say, you are beautiful. There is no flaw in you. There will be no wrinkle. There will be no spot to tarnish the church's beauty. And the Lord will make his bride to be with him forever. But in the meantime, he's cleansing us by his word. Even now, as we listen to his voice this morning, he's making us pure. What does obedience look like for the husband? It looks like this. You, husband, you are instrumental in your wife's sanctification. 
Husband, listen to this. It is clear that you are not your wife's redeemer. That title belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. But you are called to be a conduit through which she may become more like her redeemer. So here are two of the most soul searching questions you could ask of yourself. If you are a husband this morning, are you ready? First is your wife closer to Christ today than she was when you first married her. If yes, and here's the second question, is it because of you or in spite of you? Those two questions will either hurt you very deeply or they will lead to thanksgiving. Did you notice what this teaches us about husbandly love? It teaches us that husbandly love is not reactionary. Husbandly love takes the initiative. It seeks the spiritual benefit of the wife at all times with the understanding that sin will always be a part of the equation. Cleansing, listen to this, cleansing entails the presence of dirt, the presence of sin. Therefore, husbandly love does not expect a sinless, perfect wife before he can love her. The example of Christ frees us, frees the husband to love a wife who actually struggles with sin. Some of you husbands may object to this and say, but my wife really is, she is a big sinner. You have no idea. Exactly. And I'm glad that you understand that. We are understanding each other. Tell me, oh, righteous husband, answer me this question. What does it mean that the Lord is cleansing his church? It means that the church still has sin, yet he still loves her. Listen, Jesus expresses his love in that he does not abandon her church because of her sin. Rather, Listen, the church's sin, the church's sin is the very backdrop against which Christ's love shines the brightest. Jesus will never use the church's remaining sin as an excuse to stop loving her. Therefore, you can't either. His purpose is to cleanse the church and sanctify the church and his purpose will remain undeterred. Do you see what this means? Do you see what this means? Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, my, my wife is a big sinner who sins many, many sins against me. This is where your love for her is meant to shine the brightest. Oh, really? You may say to me, Really? We're, we're pretending to have a conversation, right? Really? Are you serious about that? Yes. Really. Here's why. To love your wife as Christ loved the church means that her sanctification will always be more important than any offense you may receive from her. In other words, her progress in holiness 
supersedes your right not to be offended. This is husbandly love. To what degree is the husband to love his wife? To the superlative degree. But you may argue and you continue to argue with me, of course. You simply do not know my wife. She's something else. She's arrogant. She's prideful. She's offensive. She's rude. Enough is enough. Really. Really. Enough is enough. That argument will never, ever work for a Christian husband. Ever. And here's why. Jesus will never say to his church those words. Because the day Jesus says those words to his church, you, my Christian husband, will go to hell. The day Jesus abandons his church will be the day you are free to abandon your wife. The love of Jesus for us literally covers a multitude of sins. So let me ask you this. Does your wife offend you? The love, then love her as Christ loved the church. This means you live with her understanding that you are instrumental in her sanctification. And if you think about it, the very need for sanctification implies the presence of sin. Therefore, her ongoing imperfections and sins are nothing but an opportunity for you, husband, to grow in your own Christ-likeness. This is amazing, friends. In an ultimate sense, the way you treat your wife says more about what you truly believe about the gospel than almost anything else in your life. Almost anything else in your life. And finally, he must love her intimately. And we'll keep this short. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own body. What is Paul reminding us of here? Well, he's reminding us of the second greatest commandment. What does the second greatest commandment say? You shall love your neighbor. How? What is the standard? As yourself. As yourself. And he uses the analogy of the body. If you think about it, it doesn't get any more intimate than this. Your body is with you at all times. You cannot separate yourself from your body. It is there when you sleep. It is there when you eat, etc. Many things are implied. You know your own body. You care for your own body. You feed your own body. And Paul says, with the same care, you tend to your own body, you should tend to your wife. And this is the bridge to the last question for today. And again, we'll keep this brief. Why must he love her this way? Why must he love her this way? Why must the husband love his wife exclusively, sacrificially, purposefully, and intimately? Because of an indicative that we find in verse 31. What does it say in verse 31? The two shall become what? One flesh. My friend, that is not for you to decide. It has been decided for you. If you are married, you are one flesh. I don't care what you think. Let's just keep it real. God made that decision for you. If you are married, you are one flesh. It is an indicative. So, we'll cover this next year. When we get to verse 31 and discuss the Christian marriage.
Let me just give you a brief conclusion to husbands this morning. These verses are calling us to essentially three things. First, repentance. Repentance. You cannot consider the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and come away thinking, I'm doing all right. You can't. You will always fall short. We will always fall short. So this is a call to repentance. Secondly, this is a call to faith. Because only Jesus can cover your sins. And number three, this is a call to rejoicing because we are actually free to love our wives. You don't need a perfect wife to evoke love from you. What you need, you already have. What you need is a wife who struggles with sin so that you may show her the same exclusive, sacrificial, purposeful, and intimate love Christ has shown his church. Stop complaining. Stop complaining about your wife. You need to be to her what Jesus is to his church. As I said at the beginning, we will go back to verses 25, 26, and 27 as we consider the love of Christ for the church and why he came to this earth. For now, let us just pray together. Father, we give you praise for your word, which is able to make us wise unto salvation. We thank you, Father, for the love of Christ for us. And I pray for those of us in this room who are husbands or who will become one day husbands. Help us to understand the depth of the love with which we must love our wives so that we may be faithful representatives of Christ on this earth. Thank you for the work of your spirit who guides us into all truth. And now may all the glory and the praise be yours as we consider the death of the Lord Jesus through the Lord's Supper. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at this time, I'm going to ask the worship team to come as we prepare to remember the central theme of the Christian faith, which is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. We are going to partake of the Lord's Supper and as you consider the importance of this, think of Exodus, what happened in Exodus. Uh, the, Lord Jesus, the, the Lord says that he sent the angel of death, but he gave the Israelites hope. What was the hope? Take a lamb, sacrifice the lamb. And when I see the blood of the lamb, the Lord said, I will pass over you. Well, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He died for you. And when he sees Christ in us, we know that his wrath has been fully satisfied. So if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus this morning, if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus, you are invited to partake. And if not, we ask that you let it pass it by you. This morning, I'm going to ask you to stay seated and our ashers are going to lead you from the back forward as you come and partake of the elements.
precious blood it's love vast as the ocean loving kindness as the blood when the prince of life our ransom shed for his precious blood who his love will not remember who can cease to sing his praise he can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days Fountains open deep and wide Through the floodgates of God's mercy Flow the vast and gracious tide Grace and love like mighty rivers Poured incessant from above Heaven's justice kissed a guilty world in love who his love would not remember who can cease to sing his praise he can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal day kindness as the flood when the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood first corinthians 11 the words of the apostle paul for i received from the lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In verse 25, the apostle continues and says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
Then the apostle concludes and says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Amen. Our benediction this morning comes from the same book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen to these words. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Amen. We're dismissed.